And hello and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis, and welcome especially to one of our Thursday shows. Love our Thursday shows. I love our guest today. We have a wonderful guest joining us, Victor Avila, in studio, and we're going to hear a lot about the uh, southern border in America, not necessarily how bad things are, because we'll hear about that a lot, uh, but also about what we should do about it, what America could do about it, what a strong Congress could do, a strong president, a strong governor could do. Before we get into that, I want to quickly lay out our uh, thinking over the next several weeks on the show. I want to let you know that our summit this past weekend, which was their, our third annual Women for Freedom Summit, was just a total home run. And what we're going to do over the next week is on my show next week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we're playing different segments. You get to see the summit yourself in, in little bits and pieces uh, throughout next week while we take a short break from live shows. I'll be going on vacation with my husband next week and visiting family. So we'll be gone next week, but you'll see the summit yourself, get to watch the, uh, the various interviews, uh, the speeches, and also the following Monday, October 31st, will be the last day of replaying our summit. So you'll pretty much see the whole summit and we'll be back live on Tuesday, November 1st. And that week, I want to let you know about that week. We have a great week of guests lined up. So mark your calendar for we have a Texas Senator Bob Hall on Tuesday, November 1st. He is the, the rock star of current uh, Texas state senators, a leader on every issue that any conservative cares about. Just a great guy. He's joining us. On Wednesday, November 2nd, we have Dr. Peter McCullough, now really internationally renowned, but certainly nationally renowned, uh, leading cardiologist and also the most brave spokesperson, among the most brave spokespersons in America, talking about COVID, the cures, the vaccines, the, the risk of the vaccines. Dr. M Peter McCullough joining us in studio on November 2nd. And then on November 3rd, so, so two weeks from today, on Thursday, November 3rd, we have Chad Jackson joining us, who is a writer and also a star of the documentary Uncle Tom 2. There was an original Uncle Tom documentary. Uh, Larry Elder is a producer of these, and it's basically uh, the voice of conservative black Americans laying out for the American people how they view issues, how their lives have experienced. Uh, Uncle Tom 2 is really about cultural Marxism. There was a great summary they wrote, which is essentially the point that the movie was trying to, to depict for America that cultural Marxism is really the vehicle that the left has used to divide America racially and to create a constant perception of victimhood and, uh, and division. It's a brilliant, brilliant documentary. So Uncle Tom 2, uh, Chad Jackson, join us in the studio to talk about the film, uh, what the points are trying to make, and how America can move forward. So those are our shows. We're back live that first week of November. Um, and up until then, next week, you can watch our entire summit, which again, I was just very pleased about. I also, once in a great while, want to give great thanks when the music starts for this show, I Am America, uh, someone in the audience today was kind of dancing in her seat, but that's okay. But I will tell you also, my, my show was on Salem. Years ago, it was on Salem Radio. And I went in one night to get my show started, and the producer of my show was saying, you know, I was listening to the, the guy who runs the whole studio over there going down the hall, and he's singing to himself, I Am America. That song that is the lead-in for our show. Well, that song is by Krista Branch. She is a singer. Her husband is the writer of the lyrics, and he's also the composer of the music. They're a great musical team. I was so grateful years ago that she gave me permission to have that be our theme music, to use it on the show, which I have for years, uh, since 2014. So it's a great, great, uh, and it really just captures this show. 
The message of I Am America is the people who will shape America's future are the ones who get involved on issues and fight for them. So I Am America fits my show. Thank you to Christian Branch for sharing that. Okay, long intro today. To turn to say, we have Victor Avila joining us in the studio. He's been on the show a number of times. I'm not sure how many times. Uh, he's the author of the book, a book called Agent Under Fire, a murder and a manifesto. We'll talk briefly about his experience at the border, but the reason I want to have him do that so you know that he's speaking from firsthand experience. He's not just pontificating from afar. He's worked on the border and his experience on the border, what happened to him and his partner, what occurred in Mexico really made him on fire about the idea of what the, where, where we are in terms of our enforcement of the border. He is a retired supervisory special agent with the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, commonly called ICE, Homeland Security Investigations, HSI, under the Department of Homeland Security, DHS. So he had this experience on assignment in Mexico. Um, Special Agent Avila suffered multiple gunshot wounds and survived a violent ambush by one of the Mexican drug cartels, uh, Los Zetas, his special agent and partner, um, Jaime Zapata, was killed. Uh, at, in this, so this was a story of his original book. He's been since that time. Uh, he's met, received many, many awards as a fighter at the border. And he's been recognized for excellence in law enforcement by the ICE Hispan Hispanic Agents Association, received the Director's Award for Operation in Plain Sight in Mexico, Homeland Security Investigations Excellence in Public Service Award, many, many others. He visits the border regularly, not just to wring his hands about what's occurring, but to try to size up why is the border so open? What is occurring? What needs to change? So welcome to the show, Victor Avila. Always great to be with you, Debbie. Thank you so much, and congratulations on a, another successful summit. Thank you. Yes, it was. Um, we're catching up on our sleep still, actually, after that summit, but happy to. It was wonderful. Okay, so I want to just start with, and I, I don't want to have the show focus entirely today is what occurred, but I do want you to quickly summarize the story, what occurred with you and your partner, so people understand that the personal sacrifice you've made in trying to uh, really enforce America's border and, and what occurred with you and your partner. Uh, absolutely, I'll put it to you this way. Um, this, this mission of mine is personal. Uh, in 2011, on February 15th, my partner and I were ambushed, like you said, by the Zeta cartel and went through a horrific event where he was killed in line of duty and I was shot three times and I'm here by the grace of God. And so I've stared evil in its eye, um, uh, talking about the cartels, and we'll talk a little bit more about that imminent danger that we face in our country because of them. And um, I understand the, the politics in Mexico, who uh, Mexico has a major role about what's happening here at the border. Uh, and so what ha was happening with this new administration, I started going down the border on my own because I couldn't believe exactly what was happening. I worked at the border for 20 years. I was born and raised on the border. Um, I have a very unique perspective, not just with uh, the narcotics trafficking, but human trafficking, human smuggling, and other uh, commercial frauds that happen on in our international borders. And so I went there the first time in March of last year, and I couldn't believe my ears and eyes. I just thought this was not happening. And I've continued to go to the border approximately once a month ever since. I just got back about 15 days, 10 days ago from Eagle Pass, Texas, which happens to be one of the hubs in Texas where the illegals are coming in. But I, I, I agree with your assessment that we're kind of beating a dead horse here and talking about the problem. We know what the problem is. We know what the administration is doing, I believe, uh, blatantly, openly doing it on purpose. And um, let's talk about solutions. Let's talk about the impact that this is having on our communities, not just on the, the Texas, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, and California border, but the rest, the rest of the state and the rest of the country. 
Absolutely. I meant to mention introducing you. You're also a wonderful public speaker. And for our listeners, if your group is looking for someone to talk about the border, uh, Victor Avila has, a, he is a public speaker uh, for hire, says he. And the uh, <laughs> website is called Victor Avila Speaks. Victor Avila Speaks, I think that Amelia can put that up in a moment. But I, I love to have someone with firsthand knowledge like you uh, making yourself available. You've interviewed in all sorts of um, Fox News and all sorts of other um, Univision, OANN, and many other uh, shows. So you went through this experience at the border, and as we're all acknowledging, the border is just completely unenforced. And why I, one quick point on that, there's a gentleman uh, who's a friend, who's a member of Congress, soon to be a member of Congress, soon to be elected, and went down the border recently, and then later I was talking with him, and he said, you know, people really, it's a fallacy to say that we have a poorly enforced border. There really isn't a border there. I mean, in many segments, there's nothing stopping people from pouring in. And and many shows have gone off on the political motivation, I believe driving the Biden administration to not enforce the border. And that's probably not our goal today, but I want to make that point that the border could be enforced. I mean, there, the border is not unenforced because we don't understand how to do it, because it's too hard, it's too overwhelming. It could be enforced if the Biden administration wanted to. Is that accurate? That's absolutely true. And it has nothing to do with resources. A lot of time you hear the left, well, we need more border patrol agents. We actually have enough. If you would put them down at the border to actually do their duties and scope of duties, what they were trained to do, we wouldn't have this issue, but they're not. And that's one of the biggest frustrations. And frustration is actually a, 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 not the correct word. It's it's dysfunctional where the border agents are just not allowed to do their jobs. And I do a comparison. Think of a, a local police officer, a sheriff's deputy on the street where he would encounter a crime and he wouldn't be allowed to do anything about that crime, but just witness it and let that person go. Well, that's exactly what's happening at the border. It happens to be illegal immigration, it happens to be human smuggling and trafficking and, and all these other crimes that are federal, federally uh, prosecutable which sometimes the federal government is trying to send it to the state. And we could talk about that with the sheriff's rule. Um, but no one's cooperating on both on the prosecution side because it all comes together. And I do want to mention that it's hard to separate what's happening at the border with politics. And when I go around the country speaking to a lot of political groups and other groups, I tell them this, listen, uh, you are going to hear some politics out of me because it's like this. It's, it's connected. It really is because of the policies that have been implemented by this administration. Couldn't agree more. And actually, I think it really is unfair to America to let the Biden administration get off with any kind of excuse about border policy, about abandoning our troops in Afghanistan, abandoning the country of Afghanistan, and countless other policies. It's not okay to give them an excuse while they tried their best. This was an unforeseen outcome, an unintended consequence. They are doing exactly what they intend to do at the border and everywhere else. They intend to do the things they're doing and you can attribute different motives, you can excuse it, but you can't say they don't mean these, they mean what's happening at the border. They mean to have it become porous. So I wanna hear just a few of the damages coming to America. One being the uh, bringing in fentanyl into America. And you know, I know these, the data points are just overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, I'll give quick, uh, two quick ones. Fentanyl overdose is now the number one cause of death among U.S. adults between ages 18 and 45. More than COVID-19, more than motor vehicle accidents, more than cancer, more than suicide, number one cause of death. Uh, second one, a similar one, a data point, had to do with the number of deaths that are occurring, uh, or this one, Texas, this was in 2021, seized enough fentanyl 
at the border. Texas alone sees enough fentanyl to kill 200 million people this year alone at the border. I mean, that, that's two-thirds of America, more or less. Uh, the third one was that the number, it was like 30 states in just this last year have had twice as many deaths from fentanyl as they had the previous year. So let's just start with that. Fentanyl comes in at the border. If you had adequate enforcement, is there a way to stop it or detect it, or is it just impossible to stop? Well, you have to address, and I'll use the, the, fam the famous words of our borders are Kamala Harris is the root cause, right? <laughs> the root cause oh, yeah. effect here would be the cartels and because, and China. China is embedded in Mexico and they have been for many years with the drug cartels and with other, other trades, the steel trade and other trades in Mexico because Mexico is so corrupt that China has a, uh, a free-for-all of coming in and bringing the, the chemicals and the precursors and giving them to the cartels. Lately, I've heard that some of these pills, these counterfeit, counterfeit pills that you hear about, now the rainbow-colored and, and candy-looking kind of uh, uh, fentanyl pills are already coming in ready to go, already produced by China into Mexico for the cartels to distribute. And part of these seizures that you talk about, it's important where these seizures are occurring. They're occurring in Phoenix, Arizona. They're occurring in Portland, Oregon. In Portland, Oregon, in California, in, in our country, not right. necessarily at the port of entry. Of course, a lot at the, at the river and our port of entries, but a lot of it within our country from Sheriff's Department and, and such. And I tell people a lot, when you see these big seizures, everybody claps and celebrates. I don't. Because I know as a narcotics enforcement officer, when I was at the, uh, at the border, that's not a good thing. When you see these type of seizures being taken down, when we would take down these seizures, we knew that we were, that the tremendous amount of drugs were coming in. When the seizures would stop, then we knew that we were having a control of what was happening. But when you see these seizures, you're talking about 10 to 15% of what actually is coming into this country. So although the seizures are great and we're stopping pills and, and poison to come into the country, it's not really the, what you're seeing as a solution or impact to stop it. It's coming in and it is the fentanyl, it's the methamphetamine that's a huge impact with our crime. I just returned from South Dakota. They have a big impact in South Dakota with methamphetamine cartel presence in that state um, and the crime associated with that, with that drug. Cocaine is making a huge comeback. Heroin is still there, it's a lot cheaper. These drugs are hitting every community of the whole country. I want to make sure one point I'm understanding. You're saying that this seizure, happy as you are to have anything of drug seized, of course, but this idea we could seize enough fentanyl to kill 200 million people in one year. This is at, just at Texas border. That is the reason that's not cause to celebrate is because you're only really capturing 10 to 15% of the total volume coming through. That's absolutely right. And like I said, I'll, I'll reiterate that it's, it's a good thing. And we've already seized enough fentanyl to kill everyone in the United States probably twice over. We've had some tremendous amount of seizures, which is great, but that's because it's coming in almost undetected. I mean, 85% is coming in and it's coming in from every port, from the open border, in between the ports of entry, through the ports of entry, through the airports, uh, uh, marine operations as well, through the ocean. So it's coming everywhere. You know, at my summit, we talk a lot about China. And on my show, we've had experts talking about China, about the idea that China is, is attempting to become the single world superpower. They really do intend to rule the world. And part of what that requires of them is to take down America. So fentanyl coming to America through Chinese organized or supplied sources in Mexico or anywhere else 
It's part of the destruction of America, the weakening of America, the increase of death toll in America. It, it's an attack on America. It literally is. It's just not. People sometimes, for some reason, don't pay attention to it because they're not bullets. But the poison of the drugs is as effective or even more so. You read the numbers of, I think we're at 110,000. And, and to be clear on the 110,000 deaths, those are all of overdose deaths of opioids in the country. About 67% of those deaths are straight uh, directly related to fentanyl poisonings. And I call them poisonings because that's what they are. Most of these deaths, and I've talked to the mothers and fathers that have lost children to one pill. Some have a drug addiction problem, most do not. Most are kids in college are experimenting with an Adderall, Oxycontin, or they think they're taking a Xanax for one time and they die because of that one time. That was one of the points that it was in one of the articles I was reading this morning preparing for our interview is drug officials trying to say your fentanyl in some other drug that you think you're taking that's relatively harmless, it's not going to really hurt you, you cannot taste it, you can't see it, you can't smell it, you can think this is something, you mentioned Adderall, but whatever the drug is you think you're taking can be laced with a smallest amount of fentanyl, no way to detect it without a, instead of without a drug testing strip and enough to kill you. A lot of police departments around the country, they already, police first responders carry Narcan. They're not having to carry Quick say what Narcan is. Yeah. Uh, Narcan is a anti um, uh, first responders, uh, an injectable that would uh, work against the overdose of the, the effects of fentanyl and yep. to basically okay. stop someone from having their heart stop. Really, that's what it does. And we've seen a lot of police officers around the country be exposed by the powder. Uh, when they do a, a traffic stop or by, by touching it, that's how powerful fentanyl is. You'll absorb it through your skin, it gets through your eyes or your nose, and, and you die. Literally, that's if you get an overdose uh, effect of it. But the overdose is such a small amount, smaller than the pinky on my, on my finger here, on the nail. And so it, um, uh, there's, there's reports and intels out there that this is a weapon that could be used in a football stadium and release, the, release this powder and would kill tens of thousands of people. And, um, but it's killing them anyway with, with these pills. Now with Halloween coming around, um, you cannot trust any, any kind of candy that is a loose type of candy. Um, you know, I tell kids and tell everyone, please make sure you're, you're eating a candy that's wrapped from a store. The same thing with a prescription medication, make sure it came from the pharmacy, not from online, not from a friend. Well, on the subject of candies, as Halloween is coming up, there was a big story about fentanyl looked a lot like Skittles. That's right. And the, the very popular kids' candy. And that concept, I mean, number one, it's alarming to citizens, to parents, to everyone. But the fact that the manufacturers or whoever puts it in the form to look like a candy, it is proof positive of their effort to... to to kill innocent people, to hide what they're doing. I mean, it's one thing for, I don't, I don't want anyone to have a problem with fentanyl, but if you're an adult and you're, you know you're trying fentanyl for the high or whatever it is you get, I don't even know, but to do it with, in a form of candy, you're intending to harm innocent people. I mean, it shows the malice that's involved in all of this. And I like you bring uh, you bring up the point. I don't I don't think I've ever heard of anybody wanting to take fentanyl is that on right? purpose. I, I never heard of that. I, I heard um, uh, you know fentanyl is that an actual drug? It's a real drug that's used for um, cancer, uh, terminally ill cancer patients. It's used for um, um, uh, when they put you to sleep to go on. Uh, uh, by uh, no to go on under surgery they use it oh, okay. uh, anesthetic. Uh, anesthetic I'm sorry yeah. yes and so it's a real drug um, it's highly controllable and, and, and it's a control on the schedule 
but now Congress is trying to change the schedule of that of that drug to make it to where it's a uh, kind of in the same schedule as heroin, where it could be prosecutable uh, in a different way under law. And and that's another uh, what I've learned. A lot of the the police departments that I uh, talk to around the country, these police departments are treating a lot of these fentanyl overdoses as or poisonings as homicides. And so where they go back and investigate that person, where did you get it from, where did you buy it, and they will be prosecuted by, as, a, as a murder because that's Good. exactly what they just did. Okay, so if you were in charge of border security, <laughs> what could you do about fentanyl? Well, you, you, gotta, you gotta attack the, the cartels. And we gotta be on the offense now with the cartels. The cartels are an imminent threat to our country. They are foreign terrorist organizations. I write about this in my book. Um, I've, been, yeah. I've been talking about this for years, about the designation. You heard a little bit about it here in the last couple of months. There was a big meeting because the official designation at the federal level comes from the State Department. It's not gonna happen under this administration. But President Trump was very close at declaring them uh, back in 2020 when um, this whole change happened with Mexico, the remain in Mexico policy, and Mexico got uh, their act together. Why? Because one of the things that President Trump was, he had a little chit chat with Mexico and said, I am gonna, first of all, I'm gonna put tariffs on everything that comes over from Mexico. Second, uh, I'm gonna designate these cartels as FTOs, which means you would foreign have- Foreign terrorist organizations. Foreign terrorist yep. organizations. That means that you would have a ISIS, an ISIS, a uh, Taliban, a, an Al Qaeda, right here next door, not 6,000 miles away, which I believe they are. And, and designating them as a foreign terrorist organization does not just mean you call them a bad name. No. It releases, uh, it releases money. It releases federal forces. It releases uh, avenues of attack against them that you wouldn't have otherwise. Department of Defense resources, but most yeah. importantly, you immediately attack the assets and monies. Uh, illicit funds of the cartels. The, the, the cartel ideology is not like that of ISIS, and that's some of the pushback sometimes that I get, but I really don't care what the ideology is. Their ideology of the cartels is power and money, and you cut, you cut the source, so you would then be able to seize immediately all their funds all around the world. It's not just in the United States, in 50 countries around the world as well. This I love, seizing their funds. I, I mean, it is, you know, it's really, as a minor deviation analogy, you know, back when Reagan was realizing we've got to fight the Cold War, we've got to fight Russia and, and communist expansion, he said we can't just be building up weapons and building up better nuclear weapons and out, you know, planning, outmaneuvering them militarily. We have to fight them at every level. And so he talked about, I've forgotten the term he used, but the notion was fight them economically, you fight them politically, you, you fight them through propaganda, you use as many avenues as possible to destabilize and harm them, the, the, the communist Russians. Well, it's the same thing here. We can't just wait till they get to the border and hope we can catch a few cartel people crossing the border. It is, it is diminishing and destroying their operations. You have to go to the source and we have to reestablish a real uh, America first type of policy with Mexico. Mexico has a Mexico first policy and that's okay with them. But if you say America first policy, all of a sudden it's a bad thing. We're racist and we're, we're selfish. But we are at a point of extreme measures at this country, not just with the, with the border situation, but with a lot of crime around the country, inflation and many other issues that you have to go to the source. You have to deal with Mexico. Um, that hasn't happened under this administration. We keep on sending them money and there is no enforcement whatsoever on that end. The president of Mexico, AMLO, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, he goes by AMLO, uh, would rather give him hugs than bullets. These are his words. 
And there was a big massacre just a few days ago in Mexico, 14 people killed in a, at a public place. And he sends the military down there. Well, the military is corrupt as well. Uh, the police is corrupt. The politicians are corrupt. You know, Mexico has the most uh, journalists killed in that country, 15 officially, 30 unofficially. Mexico is the most dangerous country for a journalist to work in. Not the Middle East, not Afghanistan, not Syria, but people think that's, that's, you hear these names of these countries and automatically think, now my purpose is to shift that thing and say, when you think of that type of terrorism, it's right next door in Mexico. Okay, quickly for our radio listeners, um, on number one, I want to thank Broadband Radio for carrying this show. We're going to go off to a break at the bottom of the hour at 30 minutes past the hour. We're going to keep on talking while you're gone, but come back after three minutes. We'll still be here. We're speaking with Victor Avila. He is the author of Agent Under Fire, A Murder and a Manifesto. He's also an extraordinary expert on the situation on America's southern border, sought after speaker and expert on the topic of not just how bad it is, but how we fix it. So do come back and you can listen to our entire interview later. You can always go to our website, americacanwetalk.org. You can listen to the whole interview as well as listening to past interviews, past shows. Everything we do is all up there for you. So come to americacanwetalk.org. Okay, so back to where we are. Victor, the thing is, I don't want to talk just about fentanyl, but this idea of getting after the cartels, oh, let me back up. The damage to America, these horrific stories you read about parents just, you know, they're, they're devastated because a child touched something or took one pill with no intention of, of, of engaging in the use of fentanyl or, the, or, I mean, they just didn't know what was going to happen and literally dropping dead, losing their child. If you know that's happening, you see the numbers in our country, to me, not enforcing the border, not going actively against the cartels, you're choosing an open border and the benefits you believe will flow to the administration for an open border over protecting American citizens. Is that too strong? No, no, that's absolutely correct, and uh, and I'll go back to answer your question of what I would do. Oh yes, uh, please well, do. well, uh, I would love to be in that position because it's not as complicated as people think. First of all, all you have to do is open the, the our own law books and our own legislation that we've passed legally in this country and have it enforced by our by not just our border patrol agents, ICE agents, DEA, and let them enforce that. But there's a there's a catch to it because we also need the Department of Justice to handle the prosecutions. So right now on the border, if a border agent said on his own, I'm gonna arrest this person just simply for illegally entering into the country, that person is not gonna be prosecuted because the Department of Justice has been given the orders by this administration that you're not gonna prosecute them. That's why there's catch and release uh, in effect right now. And so that person is processed and released into our country. Well, that times six, seven million, which is the number that I believe really has come in in the last almost two years. And so um, the Venezuelans that were released, being released from prison, from Maduro, I was talking about that from sources that I got information weeks before it, it came out news. and DHS finally sent out, well, it was leaked, uh, an intel report from DHS admitting that in fact, the president of, uh, of that regime in Venezuela was releasing these criminals straight to our border in Texas. And they were coming up clean on their criminal histories because Venezuela doesn't report any of these violations on databases that we use. So we're processing them and laying them in. And let me tell you, these are hardcore criminals. And uh, I'm a big national security public safety advocate. These are individuals that were gonna end up where you live. And God forbid you end up being a, another victim of a crime uh, at the hands of these individuals. Uh, I mentioned the crime surge that we have in this country. We have enough to deal with 
in our own cities that because of the same problem, the lack of prosecutions, the bail reform uh, instances, for example, in New York and California, these, these individuals are being arrested and the police are now not wanting to do their jobs because they know that the result is going to be nothing. They'll right. pick this guy up in the morning and be out by the end of their shift with committing more heinous crimes. And there's story after story now on a daily basis where it's hopefully waking people up really quick. You see the impact that it had uh, these buses and these airplanes sent with illegals to Martha's Vineyard. And um, while I agree that it, it woke that part of the country awake, it woke them up about the problem, that's not the real solution that we're going to end up helping, you know, you know, process and, and, and get these individuals where they actually want to go. But now they're building uh, a big facility just like they have down on the southern border in New York. So it's sending the message again next to the rest of the world that we don't have room for you, but we'll make room for you. And these facilities are state of the art, soft sided facilities. But they're not for our U.S. citizens. They're not for our homeless. They're not for our veterans. They are for people that are not in this country legally. Yeah, the point about Venezuela, again, the, you know, the border issue for so long in the media was covered entirely as by the leftists, the idea that America is the wealthiest country in the world with a land of opportunity and, you know, we've got to welcome people in, we've got to help these people. And these are probably just poor, uh, you know, men and women who can't make it in their home community and they're just coming here for a better life. And so if you were at all critical of the open border or the failure to enforce the border, you were branded a racist or at the very least intolerant, insensitive, selfish or some other bad word. And so really, the kind of work you're doing is extraordinarily important because it's helping people get the message, understand that the entire way the media and the left has depicted our problem at the border is just a farce. It's just a lie. We're not watching you know, single mothers with three children who just need to find a better life come across the border. We're watching criminals. And the particular example you just gave of Venezuela, in a normal country, if you were the president or the government in Washington and you realized that a foreign power, a communist foreign power, was emptying his jails of violent criminals and sending them to your border, mostly you would think, I mean, any sane person would think, well, gee, we're going to go down there and turn them back and we're going to do something to Venezuela, impose sanctions. But we didn't do anything, right? No, and we've seen this happen before. It happened in the, in the late 70s and 80s in, in Cuba when yeah. Castro opened up the prisons and send them all to uh, Miami. And so we've seen the impact of what that happens. But I do want to say this. I'm a very, very uh, pro-legal immigration per person. I want people to come to this country legally. We do have a legal process, although that might be broken too, and I I'm willing to fix it. Um, that's what it is right now. And there is a legal channel to come into this country and it's being ignored. Our constitution is being ignored. Our legislation is being ignored. Um, our sovereignty is being ignored and is disrespected by the rest of the world. And that's what I feel personally, that um, there's no consequences, there's no, um, uh, no one is talking to these countries to shift the burden back to them. The burden has been placed on the United States for right. whatever reason exactly. to take care of the rest of the world. Well, why don't we take care of ourselves? And then we've always been a very compassionate country. I'm a compassionate person. I understand what this is happening right now. The open border situation right now is an inhumane one. It's not the other way around. The left thinks that because it's open border, you're being humane by letting anybody in. But let me tell you what's happening. Death is what's happening at the border because the border is open. A drowning per day is what they're averaging down there. Illegal aliens hanging themselves because they're lost uh, in the desert. Um, 
people dying, and you heard of the, ba the, the 53 that died in the back of a tractor trailer, yes. suffocated to death. The rollovers and deaths of people evading during the human smuggling ventures. This is what's happening almost on a daily basis down there. I stood at the Maverick County uh, the cemetery in Eagle Pass, Texas, with 45 unidentified crosses behind me of Jane Doe's and, and Baby Doe's and, yeah. and, and uh, John Doe's, illegal aliens that are buried because the county had no more money to identify them through DNA testing. This is the reality. Down in Brooks County with Sheriff Martinez, he doesn't have anywhere to put the bodies. He has portable freezers for the extra bodies that he has and, and waiting to see who they are and try to identify them. This is what's happening. So the human suffering is being caused because we don't border. enforce the border. Correct. Okay. You know, we could talk about fentanyl all day, and honestly, I, I'm so troubled by it because once you realize the, the just immense danger of that drug that we're not doing everything we can think of to stop it coming into America and not more openly identifying China as a problem, Mexican cartels as a problem. But, um, you know, we could also hit on sex trafficking, yes. uh, which I, I don't want to go into today because I've done other shows, but the same thing the cartels do in, in trafficking drugs here, they tra there's sex trafficking of children and women. We just had uh, experts on the show recently talking about what occurs, which is uh, almost like not okay for prime time to discuss the way they're treated, uh, the, the women and children being uh, sex trafficked. But I do want to turn to, so say we had, this is changing topics, but say we had a Republican majority take over the U.S. House and this fall, you know, a few weeks away, we have our elections, and we actually had a solid Republican majority in the House, and they want to do something about the, the Biden administration, to be really clear, has absolutely no intention of ever enforcing a southern border. So is it bad enough in, at the southern border that the Republican majority in the House should actually consider taking steps like saying, we refuse to fund X, whatever the X would be that the Biden administration wants until you enforce the border, until you finish the wall or make categories. You must do this, this and this. Is it bad enough we should get what would seem to be a radical course of action to say you got to do this or else and, 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 and until you fix the border, we're not funding what you want? Well, extreme times require extreme measures and we're there now and uh, we will take over the House and hopefully the Senate and there will be this red wave coming and it will, they will be have an impact. I am with you 100%. The Congress has to force, the, the Republicans have to force the Democrats by withholding funding, maybe even by funding the government itself. Because we have to put a stance and say, if you're not, we, we were fined over $5 billion just a few years ago. $5 billion, which now seems nothing after we sent, I think I lost count, $70 billion to Ukraine, to another exactly. country and another border. And, and, issue. and yes. yet, and, and we fought for five billion to try to build a wall. Yes, we need to finish the wall, but there's a lot more things that we need to do than than just the wall itself. It's policy implementation, remain in Mexico policy, Title 42, um, uh, the asylum cases that you see. Supposedly, they call them asylum seekers. They're absolutely not asylum seekers. Right. They're not even claiming credible fear anymore at the at the port of entry. That's what you're supposed to claim. But those those are our own criteria. We wrote the asylum criteria that we're not even following ourselves. But you're absolutely right. This administration won't do it. But this is what I think is going to happen. We're going to win in November, and you're going to see the numbers dip. Because all the this numbers at border, uh, the border crossers are going to dip. You, um, every single word that comes out of a politician's mouth is followed by the cartels and is followed by the rest of the world, including the illegal aliens. And they are just waiting to see what happens. And they're on their social media spreading that message. They're going to be a bit confused. 
that the Republicans will take over the House, possibly the Senate, and control that part, and you're going to see the numbers dip because of that. But then they're going to realize that, in fact, Biden is still the president, and the policy hasn't changed, and it's going to be right back up at the beginning of the year. So the way to make the Biden administration change policy, I'm going to go back to this because God bless our founders for making the money must originate in the House. They have the purse strings. And if there is a, a strong enough majority, it doesn't have to be a huge number, but a majority of House members, Republican who want to enforce the border, don't, they have tremendous power. They can say, we're not even sending money. Uh, you know, we're not going to pay the employees of some agency. We're going to stop funding your agencies. We're going to stop funding everything until you do this. And I realize it'd be a major stand down. And I truly think the American people will be on the side of the House Republicans. Yes. And I'll give you two examples, New York and El Paso, Texas. New York is now asking more funds for the federal government because of the amount of 3,000, whatever that showed up in New York. Um, and all of a sudden they want more federal funds because we know they always want the money. Well, El Paso, Texas is in a big crisis right now. They have, they have an average of 1,200 illegals coming in through that, through that city on a daily basis, including a lot of unaccompanied children. And the mayor just lied from El Paso, Texas, saying yep. um, that in fact the White House did not ask them to declare an emergency at the city level. They were going to declare it. New York, Chicago, they, they want to declare these emergencies because it means funds for them. So you're absolutely right. The new Congress will withhold those funds. We're not going to send more money to you. You know, Brooks County, Kenny County, they've been dealing with it without any money for the last two years, and they're overwhelmed. Yeah, I'd love to see pressure from the Republicans uh, on these issues. And I honestly, I think it's going to take pressure from constituents on the Republican representatives to say, I want you to vote for this. I want you, I mean, it's going to take, because I think it's very easy to get to Washington. You have a lot of sources of lobbying you and a lot of people saying, well, you know, the Chamber of Commerce doesn't really want to have the whole border shut down. So there's competing pressures on members of Congress. So they've got to feel the strongest pressure from the American people saying, you better secure the border, and if including withhold money until they'll do it, because otherwise I think they won't. Uh, I'll just say this. It's time to lobby for the American people. That's a great line. Lobby for the American people. Yeah. Okay. On that note, too, so in, in Washington, another thing they could do, which I've often wondered why they don't, is to try to cut funding to sanctuary cities. And you could very quickly tell our listeners, sanctuary cities basically protect illegal aliens, but tell them. How, tell us how they do that. Yes, and, and, and I'll plug the book again because I wrote about this. Yes, you did. Uh, and, uh, about sanctuary cities. Uh, it's a big problem. And it's a big problem with the criminal element in sanctuary cities. It's not just the illegal that is, is there roaming around. It's the one that has been detected by a law enforcement agency for whatever crime, whether it's a DUI, family violence call, whatever. And that person is then taken into custody, into that county jail, and the way it was before, uh, years ago when I was working, we used to even have ICE enforcement, before it was even ICE, immigrant, INS, uh, deportation officers full-time in these border towns. I know in El Paso they had one where they would detect the person that is, you're completely illegal, you were set with a detainer, you would, even if you were going to try to bond out, whatever happened with your state pending case, you were an illegal alien and we would call immigration services on you. So you're not going to get released. The sanctuary city eliminates that. It seems, as a matter of fact, that because you're an illegal alien in a sanctuary city, you will be released even quicker. Somehow, you're an illegal alien and the law doesn't apply to you. It doesn't apply to you at the border, and it doesn't. you can't get on an airplane without an ID, something that you and I can't do. 
And you could do all these things and get all these resources from the government, uh, and the law doesn't apply equally to a U.S. citizen. So that's, where the, that's the dangers of the sanctuary city. We've seen it with the Kate Steinle case. We've seen it with these yeah. big cases where, for some reason, the, the left puts the illegal alien and, for that matter, a criminal as the victim. Well, they've switched it around. I call it upside down. We live in an upside down world here. Yeah, we do. <laughs> because um, the real victim of the crime has been forgotten. The American people. Yes. Yeah. You know, on that sanctuary city thing, I, I find it just, I don't know what the right word is, unconscionable or just so bizarre that we've ever gotten to a point in America where we have major cities in this country that don't enforce immigration law that should not have been ever tolerated to start with. And it's almost become a norm. And on the left, it's actually kind of a virtue signaling thing to say, well, we live in whatever city, we're, we're, we're a sanctuary city. We don't, you know, we don't pick on the poor people who entered America illegally. And so it's become an entitlement sense. And I think it'd be very hard for Congress to do this, but I'd love to have them say, you know, you sanctuary city and I have, oh, 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 hey, uh, uh, Emilio, I sent you a map. Look at all the sanctuary cities we have. You wanna see this map? Th those, my friends, up on the screen are sanctuary cities in this country. It's now that there's only like two of them not only two of them, this is, the si this is sanctuary cities, sanctuary counties all over this country. And they do not. In fact, you know, I see Texas doesn't have any. Don't uh, we have some? Dallas is one. I thought Dallas is one. Okay, you can come back El to Paso. us. <laughs> yeah. So this is, this is a map from the Center for Immigration Studies. Now, it might have been a year old. I, I couldn't get a date on this exact map. But we have in Texas, even the great state of Texas, we have them too. And I truly think it's like a, it's become, as I say, a sense of entitlement and pride on the part of leftists to say, yeah, we are in a sanctuary city. But that has to stop. That, that is the most bizarre lawlessness in a constitutional republic. I've started calling the United States a sanctuary, sanctuary country because the open border, they know that once they're in Mexico, they're as good as being in the United States. They're not going to be touched. And, um, and I'll give you a quick example. When I worked in El Paso, um, and I worked when I worked under the Obama administration, um, I, we got the call down to the field level of agents saying you will not approach illegal aliens from the age of 16 to the age of 28. That's how that policy started. I remember By being. Way, I got to back up. You got an instruction from the Obama administration. Yes saying that as, as a border agent, you are not supposed to approach people between the age of 16 and 28? I can't touch them, leave them alone, they're protected now, just, Why? just because, well, the, of, just because the president said so. And what's the reason given? None, that's the, an order from the, from the president down to the Department of Homeland Security, down to the agents. I got, I got once uh, stood down on an arrest where I was about to arrest someone. It happened to be a, a drug dealer, a, a drug trafficker, an illegal alien, and it happened to be at a, at a at a, at a school, at a university. And uh, we were about to arrest him, and uh, we were asked to stand down, literally while we were there about to pick him up. By the Obama administration. He said, you will not, you will not arrest people at uh, uh, educational institutions. You will not arrest anybody at a courthouse. You will not arrest anybody at a church. That still exists to this day, by the way. And why That's not? That's executive order. That's right. Why not? Why not? Why? As a matter of fact, a lot of the people that we would encounter would be in these controlled environments because it's an officer safety issue and a lot of other things. Um, but that was given, that was, I'm talking about in 2008, 2009. Oh, brother. And so it's been in effect for a long, long time, even more so now. The interior enforcement of ICE, which is the ERO site, it's called Enforcement Removal Operations. So the part you hear a lot about in the news, the deportations, the camps, the, the, they fly them back. It's practically been abolished. 
They said they were going to abolish ICE, and they have abolished it by removing their authority from these it's officers. It's the same thing as abolishing it by That's right. If you authority. don't give them, them do their job, they're not, they're not out there doing the enforcement that they're supposed to be doing. Okay. So let's assume that Republicans win in the House and they have the majority, even the, the majority in the Senate, but they won't act to take on, which I think is entirely in the realm of possible. They won't challenge a Biden administration and the Biden administration will never enforce the border. So what do you do if you're a governor of one of these four, you know, bordering on Mexico states, California, Arizona, Mexico, and Texas? I mean, what can those governors do that they aren't doing now? Declare the invasion. You declare the invasion at the state level. Um, Arizona will do it. Um, I've spoken to Carrie Lake, which would, which she would, she's going to win. She'll be the oh, next she's governor. Gonna, she's so awesome. She's going to be the uh, the next governor of Arizona. I have met with 26 legislators in Arizona. We are now prepping with them to get them ready for that declaration of invasion. She said she will do it on day one as soon as she moves that hand off that Bible, and we're working with her to get her ready because it'll be the same thing that you're seeing in Texas. But here's the big difference with the declaration: the National Guard will have the authority their DPS or their state police will have the authority now to enforce these people. Now, I'm not talking about taking custody of them and putting them in camps. I'm talking about not letting them in the country. You're gonna encounter them and you're gonna send them right back. This is border security. This is the declaration and invasion that you adopt the US Constitution, Article 1, Section 10, and other, other uh, parts of the Constitution that would give you the authority. A lot of people say, well, as soon as that state governor does that, the, the, the Biden administration is gonna federalize the troops. Well, great, that's my answer, let them do it. Is the Biden administration gonna send the message to the rest of the world and this country that they would rather protect illegal aliens than the cartels and be on their side rather than the states of their own country? Because that's what they would be doing. Sadly, I think they would. I mean, they would do that, but back to, back to the invasion thing, why that's so powerful, um, I had an expert from Washington on the show uh, on these kind of issues. It was talking about the difference between actually declaring an invasion under the Constitution. It gives us, as you're saying, gives a state government the authority to not just capture people who cross and plop them into some federal facility, but actually to send them back, push them back. And one reason that's so powerful is there is a long list of Supreme Court decisions and actual precedents that apply that basically uphold the notion that immigration is a federal area, federal jurisdiction Too only, true. that immigration is a federal issue. So, you know, states who try to act as though or replace the federal government's role are, are un, un, acting unconstitutionally. When you move to the point of using this Article 1, Section 10, declaring an invasion, that is a whole different line of legal reasoning that the, the previous precedents, the Supreme Court precedents, do not apply and, and would not limit this, this action by the governor because yeah, that those, the Supreme Court cases have happened under other um, forms of declaration. Getting around to the point, so Governor Abbott in, here in the race state of Texas, I know we have Carrie Lake has said she'll do that. God bless that. Oh, I love that woman. Um, but in Texas, this is not what Governor Abbott did. I think he made some statements making it sound like he was doing this, but he didn't. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And uh, I'll cite uh, a report that was, uh, you'll find it online by Ken Cuccinelli, who worked for the Department of Homeland Security. He laid out in great detail the legalities of the declaration because the state of Texas has kind of used that to defend, or at least uh, the governor's office, to defend why he hasn't declared it, saying, well, we're still looking at the legalities and, and we're going to get sued. I'm, we're way beyond that. We know that, in fact, the state can do it. 
And so there might not be, not be any precedent and it's never been done before. You know what? I've done so many things in my career that had never been done before, but I did them because I intended, I wanted to do it and I did it. Uh, and I could share those another days with great, great cases and great uh, takedowns of bad people in Mexico and the United States, but because we wanted to do it. And it's a big difference about trying it and then not trying to do it at all. And so um, I, I don't know the reasoning why our governor will not do it. I don't know if it's because of elections or political reasons, but it, we're beyond that. I think you have to start looking at the people of the state of Texas, which you would in fact not be just protecting the state of Texas, but the rest of the country as well. Yeah, the rest of the country as well, for sure. You know, I didn't comment earlier when you were talking about the um, impact of first Governor Abbott and then later Governor DeSantis aiding the uh, transport of the little aliens up to places who never have this problem, at least not in the numbers we do and in the immediacy of people just coming across the border and showing up at New York, Chicago, um, wasn't it somewhere in Delaware? Um, anyway, point being, these, these entities up there have been able to kind of stand on the high horse, the intellectual superiority of being sympathetic toward illegal aliens and really you know, able to mock people who insist on a, a secure border. But when, yeah, when the rubber meets the road, they're realizing, oh, this is what's happening. We can't house them. We can't feed them. We can't, we're, we're having problems with crime with them. We can't do a darn thing about it. And these are sanctuary cities. Martha's Vineyard is the biggest of them oh, all. That was such a beautiful With the thing. most resources that you would, that any of the other towns like Del Rio, Texas, and Eagle Pass, Texas have. Right. These are not wealthy areas, Del Rio. No, no. Paso, they're very Texas poor Texas. communities. Right, very poor exactly. communities. And they've yeah. been overrun by the numbers of, of people coming through. So uh, they excuse that. Uh, they, they got them out in, in 24 hours, 48 hours, whatever it was, quickly. They were de literally deported out of, the, of Martha's Vineyard. They didn't want them there. Right now in New York, they really have a, a real issue. On top of all this, these are human beings, and they are not dressed, uh, dressed appropriately for the winter weather. They're going around knocking on doors, asking for clothing, for food, uh, for shelter that the city is not providing them. And yes, they, now they're feeling the impact, but at least it goes to show that what that's the impact that's been going on for many many years Here in these in border states yes yeah yeah um so i do want to we're going to we go to questions from the audience if we um i think the microphone is somewhere over there um but we uh, so we go to questions uh, from the audience for in a moment um i do want to say first of all i really do praise and encourage you and commend you because you know if you go the, there are many people who just see the border situation or they read about it and they wring their hands, but you've been an activist. I mean, number one, writing your book, which got your story up, but also addressing policy arguments, explaining solutions, and then doing shows like this and publicly speaking, because it really is an entire nation problem. It's not a border state problem or the border city problem. It is a whole question of the character of America and the sovereignty of America and the, and the idea of America and you know the idea in America that you you were not a nation based on race ethnicity national origin or skin color we're all about the ideas of America and the rule of law and, and constitutional government and this issue has been um, maligned by leftists in the media so much that you people think they have to fall in the category of I'm either in favor of open borders or else I'm a bigot and a hater. And so no right. one wants to be a bigot and a hater. So sure, come on in. But to really address the pragmatics as you've done in so many ways, I just really commend and thank you for that. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. 
Okay, I also want to quickly, before I go to your questions, one other quick thing is, I did have these slides ready, and Emilio has them, I think. Um, just when I talk about the fentanyl, the uh, loss of life in America, I just want to show, this is the first one that's just called um, Number of Fentanyl Deaths. Just look at this little chart. Well, I will go with that one. Okay, this is fentanyl as the cause of death. And just to understand, I said it earlier, but fentanyl poisoning is now the number one cause of death among Americans, 18 to 45. You hear all the time people talking about there's a crisis of suicide, there's cancer growing, there's COVID-19 deaths. Fentanyl, uh, far, more, far worse. And then the next one is the chart, which is just one of those kind of like one that the UN did, only it wasn't true. But anyway, this one, number of fentanyl deaths. This is over a two-year period, excuse me, yeah, a two-year period. Um, the number of fentanyl deaths in the U.S. doubled in just two years to over 64,000. And this is as of the top number is as of 2020, if you can see, as of 2020. Just getting to the notion that the fentanyl deaths here are, you know, it's, and numbers and charts are significant, but, you know, the individual families who are just, how did my precious child go off to college? And I thought the worst problem would be, you know, a guy would break her heart or, you know, he might get a little bit of trouble at the, at the fraternity house or something. And what actually turns out is they, they lose their life, lose their life because we don't enforce the border. Those deaths are on the watch of, on the responsibility of the Biden administration that will not enforce the border. It has a very direct intended political agenda. It's talked about in the show many times. If the Biden administration wanted to enforce the border, it would be enforced. If the government wanted to, if our elected representatives wanted to, it would be enforced. Okay, that, I'm off my soapbox. So now we have a um, we have a few people in the audience. We have a microphone. I have plenty of questions. If you don't have one, no one's raising their hand over there. Some okay, there, lady in the corner. Okay. Thank you, thank you, Victor. Um, you know one thing which I hadn't really thought about. You hear these sheriff's departments. Well, they're the thing, and but you're saying that. They don't really have any power. I, I understand they're overrun, but they don't have the prosecutory, whatever means. What do they do with them when they? Yeah, is that? Thank it? you, thank you for bringing up the sheriffs. Uh, yeah. As a matter of fact, the sheriffs have an, an incredible amount of power in the state of Texas and even in Arizona. And I've met with a lot of them. I've been meeting with a lot of a lot of them, and they uh, they're in a peculiar situation because it's a it's a federal jurisdiction, yet they're still enforcing their county, for, and I'll give you the big example with a uh, Sheriff Cole down in Kenny County. The, they got illegal aliens coming through the ranches, destroying the ranches, destroying property, um, you know, tearing the fences, assaulting people. They have a lot of issues, death, bodies, and all this stuff, and drugs, and guns, and everything. And so they stop these individuals, they interdict them, and if it's an illegal alien, they have to turn them over to Border Patrol. That's what it is. Now, they'll prosecute the guy with the gun and with the drug and whatever, and maybe the human smuggler at the state level, because we do have human smuggling uh, statute under, under the state of Texas, and, but that usually doesn't happen. One, there's so many of them. The numbers, our numbers are overwhelming. So they're just pushing, pushing. The Biden administration gets these bodies, and right now what they're doing is just getting these bodies out. They don't want to see another Del Rio with 17,000 Haitians under a bridge. And so they don't want that optics because they got hurt by those optics. Yeah. So what you see right now is the quickest processing, move them, getting them out. And something that's happening with the children and it's the trafficking involved here is that there is no vetting of these, whatever the sponsors, quote unquote sponsors that request these children. I have flown with these people, with adults and uh, single adults with a child 
that is not their children. That's my subject matter expertise. I have questioned them and I have determined that this person is not, this child does not belong to this man because he has no idea how to take care of this person and this, and this small child. Yet they're with them. Who knows where they're going to end up? Who knows who's going to take care of them? This is, the, this is the, the, the security issue when it comes to trafficking. We didn't even talk about national security and terrorism. We have well, had, please, I think, over seven. Yeah, I mean, there's so you. much, so much to go on. Yeah, the, the, actually, I would love to have you briefly uh, comment about that, not the national security terrorism issue. Like, who's coming across the border? Terrorists. We have already inter interdicted over 70 of them. 70 on a no-fly list, FBI a terror watch list that we, that we know about. How many that we do not have come in through that southern border pretending to be a Mexican national or Central American that, let me tell you, they have been in Mexico for a long time. Why? Because I interviewed them 10, 15 years ago. I was there in those facilities in Mexico through translators and in, in interviewing people from Bangladesh, Syria, um, uh, Somalia. They have been, they have established communities in Mexico. Well, now they see the borders wide open. They have their people come to those communities. They're quickly to learn the language and the customs. They shave their beards and they come in, in with these caravans. These are potential Islamic jihadists. Yes. Okay, that is a whole other issue where, you know, it's kind of funny in America, um, funny is the wrong word, it is an observable phenomenon is that when we have a jihad attack, a jihadist attack, either in America or a big one around the world, everyone's attention is riveted again. We look at it and say, my gosh, why do they hate us? Why do they do this? And then we scurry around and try to find the bad guys and prosecute them. But the notion of Islamic Jihad as is an ongoing, since the founding of Islam, an ongoing effort around this world it, we, we forget about it because we kind of can't process it or don't understand it well enough. But every time people come across our border who have, who've embraced the concept of Islamic Jihad, and they're very peaceful when they get here and not doing anything wrong, but we're building a community or a, a, a portion of the population that does embrace the idea of Islamic Jihad. And then we have a big attack and, and, and they're all, some of them are involved. We say, hey, what happened here? We're not recognizing. It is, I mean, it's a people ideologically opposed to the idea of America and the freedom of America and, and what America is all about. And we are letting them in our borders and we're not even not, not even able to identify them or stop them. It's like um, a time bomb. And we're not holding those accountable. Mexico, Central America, these countries that are harboring them, basically not doing anything about it. They know that these individuals are in their country. They've been there. They see them and they leave them alone. They let them act. They train in Mexico. They do a lot of things. And you're right. They come in here maybe as a sleeper cell, they call them. And what are they right. going to do? What are their intentions? We don't know because we haven't tracked them. When I worked down there in Central America, we had started the, uh, the, the iris detector to, to at least know who that person was down there because they had three or four identities. All data births were on January 1st and whatever year. Yeah. and different names one name in central america one name in southern mexico and another one in our in our port of entry seeking asylum well now they don't even have to do that because they're coming in with the hundreds and hundreds of people down in eagle pass texas and i've seen them and you're like why isn't border patrol interviewing this guy because they don't have the time the 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 biden administration says you process them and get them in and get them out and get them out because they don't yeah. want to hold them if there ever was a recipe for the destruction of America, can we do, oh, we, oh, yeah, here we go. Two more questions. Um, real quick. Uh, God willing, Carrie Lake will win. Yeah. And we know her character. She's going to do what she says. Do you think that's going to put pressure on Governor Abbott to finally do the right thing? 
I think that's absolutely gonna, exactly what's going to happen. As a matter of fact, we had that conversation that uh, with the legislators that that's what's going to happen. I'm hoping that happens. We need to continue to put the pressure, whether it's through another state, whether it's through activism, whether it's through the, the grassroots effort. We need to hold our, our elected officials accountable. And I understand it's a federal issue. I understand this is a federal statute, and that pressure is not going to come off. We're going to, I'm going to continue to put my foot on the throat of the Biden administration because they must act. You've seen some of that happen here in the last, with the Venezuelans being sent back here, and it, whether it's for political reasons because November's around the corner, whatever. We will continue to put that pressure, but I think that's what's exactly what's going to happen in, in Arizona. They're going to see the impact that we're going to do down there, and it's going to it's going to change. You're going to see it. Now they have the same issues in Arizona. Not all sheriffs are on board. We've got some very liberal sheriffs down on the border, but we, we know how to deal with that because the, the the traffic will be funneled. They will be overwhelmed. They will be begging for the help, and and it's going to happen. And I think. Texas is going to recognize, Texas is going to see what Arizona is doing, and they're going to question why isn't our governor yeah. doing the same. Governor, me too, will have to go along with that. Okay, wait, one more, one more question, please. Um, every time you go down to the border, you come back and talk about the morale of our law enforcement, of the ranchers down there, um, and the people that live in our southern border. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So I, that meet a lot, I meet a lot. This last time I met with a, a group of ranchers in Del Rio, and and Eagle Pass, Texas, um, the morale of the Border Patrol does not exist anymore. It is um, our, our National Guard. Doesn't, we had a service member National Guard commit suicide one week after I was there. Uh, this happened just last week. And I got the call. There was a shooting. He had taken his life. We have lost over five of them to suicide and lost a, a, a larger number of Border Patrol agents to suicide. This is what's causing the stress on them. Um, it's demoralized. It's, there's no moral. Uh, I mean, you see it in their eyes. And this last time, something that I saw was very unique is that you see border vehicles. Last time the, before this visit, I saw a lot of border agents, a lot of border patrol walking around doing their thing. This time, they weren't anywhere close. I saw the vehicles here and there, not until one showed up to pick up a group of 45 that had just walked in from the, from the river. One agent brought a van, and they called a bus, and they pick them up, and here you go. It's like a transport service, really, it is. And that's very demoralizing because that's not what they were trained to do. There is no border patrol goal going on right now. There's no one patrolling the border. I've done the same in Hudspeth County because not just down in the valley and down in southern Texas. I went up in uh, west Texas in Hudspeth County. That's wide open. That's cartel land. I had to suit up with a long gun and a double, you know, uh, plated vest and sidearm to go down to the river where the, uh, the Hudspeth County Sheriff took me because Border Patrol doesn't have the time or the resources because they're processing illegal aliens down south. They have taken them down there to help with that. And so it's not, when we will go back to the original question about resources, it's not about the resources, it's about how you use the resources. Well, that's how they're using them, hospital watch, processing. And so it takes them away from the line. And I went down there, and there is just cartel land. We have the drugs coming in, the illegal activity, the marijuana still comes traffic, the, the, the rest of the other drugs come through, and there is no wall there. There's actually very little. I stood in the middle of the Rio Grande River with no water, and so I worked cases of SUVs driving with illegal aliens and drugs literally through the river, incurring an incursion into our country, and it happens almost on a daily basis. Richard Avila, we need two more hours. That's, that's what we need, two more hours at least. Um, I thank you so much for taking time to join me today. This was just very informative, very alarming, but very informative, and thank you for all that you do. Thank you, Debbie, yeah, for what you do as well. Me.
And thank you for tuning in to America Can We Talk. I will quickly tell you again, I will be back live on November 1st, Tuesday, November 1st. Prior that week, we have a great lineup of shows. Uh, we have Senator Hall, November 1st, Dr. Peter McCullough on COVID on the 2nd, and Chad Jackson, Uncle Tom, number two, on Thursday, November 3rd. And between now and then, you will get to watch the entire incredibly wonderful summit that we just did this past Saturday at my regular showtime. We'll play all of our, our presentations by our speakers. It'll be really informative. They were all wonderful. And that is our show for today. Thank you so very much for tuning in to America Can We Talk every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. I do this show to speak truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you on November 1st. America, can we talk truth about America? Can you